everyone, it's Drake. I just wanted to let you know that the audio for me is a little choppy at the intro, but it gets better as soon as the, the show starts. It sounds like I'm recording on a Nokia flip phone, and you will see the irony of that uh, once you finish the intro. Cheers. Everyone, Kyle here. Just before we get started with today's episode, we want to remind you all, check us out on social media. Head over to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Reddit, TikTok, YouTube, WhatsApp, Signal, Telegram, whatever app. There's probably been something that came out in the last 30 seconds since I started talking. We're probably already on that. So head on over, give us a follow, and uh, especially see what we've been posting. Mm -hmm. We've got some uh, good-looking photos up on our on our feeds now, so go check them out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, talking about that, I mean, like, it reminds me of my first kind of foray into, you know, social media pages was probably MSN, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah and some people MSN message, messenger yeah it's like aol messenger msn messenger right and i, I mean make yeah. myspace was around that time too but like that got me thinking of you know the phone that i had was a nokia flip phone and that and my brother had the the crazy <laughs> the, the razor or crazer the flip phone it was really sweet <laughs> the crazer the quality on yeah. that, that, those cameras were suspect i guess is the best way to put it um but people love them for the, the camera quality that they had right that's uh, so my first phone was a sony ericsson and it had the reason i got it was because it had a good camera and good sound quality <laughs> both of which are just horrific in hindsight yeah. <laughs> like, i couldn't imagine yeah. i may as well have been taking a photo on a on a stapler like <laughs> <laughs> it's like the uh it's like the Game Boy DS, like being your like your digital camera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, eight bit. Yeah. Oh man! I think of all the pictures that I used to have on my my my, my like Nokia phone and how bad they were, right? But I'm like, man, this is fucking sick. I've got like this like you know what? It was probably like 60p at that point, um, but like it, you could see yeah. the pixels between my face, like between my face and my eyes. But uh, I'm, I, we were talking about that, yeah. and I'm like, I, I had a, you know, we, we were really excited when we were younger about selfies, but now it's, so it's this different thing, right? Like, you know, having smartphones, they actually can take amazing pictures and shit like that. It's like, you know, taking selfies is so easy. You just pick up your phone and it's like, you have an amazing picture that you can post right away. And you could send it right to your, your Facebook page or your Twitter or your Instagram or whatever, right? I think it's really fun to think about yeah. why we're doing what we're doing and like why we were so obsessed with selfies back in the day. But it's, I mean, we're still, we still are. We take them all the time. Right. And you said like, we were talking earlier. Absolutely. You, when was the last time you took a selfie again? Uh, I, I can't give you an exact date, but it was probably within the last <laughs> three weeks, I'd say two weeks, maybe. Yeah. Probably the last two weeks. Yeah. So you still take them, right? Like, I don't yeah. Take them all. Yeah. yeah. When, when was the last time you took them? Oh my lord! Probably two days ago. I mean, realistically, I I, I got a new haircut that was like uh, it was a not a choice that I made consciously, but like my girlfriend was giving me a haircut, and this is uh, this was Plan C, I guess is what you call it. <laughs> uh, no Still looks good though. Thank you. I appreciate looks that. Good. Sweet of you. I know. I know you're. I know you're a big fan of the gym selfie because you'll you'll send them to me and then I chirp them. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is not the time or place to do that. Uh, don't, don't, look for my, uh, don't look for my personal Instagram followers for the, to confirm these uh, 
preposterous claims. Anyway, yeah, the main yeah, thing these allegations. about selfie here, selfie theory, because I actually got to talk to Dr. Chris Berry about his work on self-perception and uh, and selfies. And so he does a lot of really cool work with narcissism and the use of selfies and you know self-portrayal. So I think you're really going to love this episode if you're thinking back about you know the first time you got your camera phone and really how excited you were about your selfies and how often you post selfies. It's something to think about. Um, Kyle missed out on this. He didn't get to interview Chris Barry with me, but he's going to enjoy listening to this, and uh, we're excited to put it out for you guys. Uh, so please do enjoy, and happy day. Welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz Podcast. I'm Drake, and today I have a special guest, Dr. Chris Berry from Washington State University. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks, Drake. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, no, I'm really glad you uh, you responded. I'm really glad you came on, Chris. I, I'm a fan of your work. We were talking just before we got on. Uh, I've been I've read I actually read a paper by you recently on FOMO, and and your uh, work specializes on. Um, predominantly self-perception in adolescence, that's narcissism, self-esteem, and personality features in children and adolescents, and, and the use of social media behaviors and, and self-perception. So I'm, I'm fascinated. Let me know what your work's about. I'm, I'm really just, I'm just excited to jump into it, more or less. Well, yeah, I think you hit some key points there. My work originally um, in my early career, and also as a graduate student, focused on self-perception in adolescence, like you mentioned, and narcissism specifically. I'm going to date myself a little bit in that when I started doing this work, social media did not exist. And so <laughs> so some of the more recent work I've done in terms of social media and adolescent well-being or social media behaviors and engagement and self-perception has just sort of evolved from that initial interest in adolescent self-perception. Right. Yeah. You can't really have a, a social media expert that's that spans over, you know, the last three decades, right? <laughs> right. right. Exactly. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of over-reliance, especially, you know, with the COVID era, you know, on social media and not being able to see people face to face. So how, I mean, how did we get here? Where do we start? Uh, let's start with uh, your work in narcissism and, and how it kind of, you know, how it blossomed into that. Sure. And it, it's been a bit of a long journey, but a, but a really fun one, a really enjoyable one. Um, as a graduate student, I studied under Dr. Paul Frick, who uh, does a lot of work in callous and emotional traits in children as they relate to conduct problems or, or as they may be risk factors for conduct problems. And sort of a close um, cousin, if you will, uh, personality-wise to CU traits uh, was narcissism. And I was really interested at the time, and this is going back to the late 90s, on the interface between narcissism and self-esteem. So there was a lot of work at the time on how low self-esteem was a risk factor for a variety of negative outcomes for young people. But on the other hand, we have this literature primarily with adults that focuses on narcissism and then maybe by extension, really high self-esteem and risk for relationship problems, aggression, things like that. And so that sort of paradox uh, really got me interested in self-perception and narcissism uh, in general. Narcissism is such an interesting word because I feel like it's used in pop culture and in a way that's not actually accurate. I know I've, I've been called a narcissist by a couple ex-girlfriends myself. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, what is narcissism truly? Like, I, because I think we have a, a general idea of it, but it's not necessarily what we, we classify as narcissism. Sure, that's a really good point that we, I think we probably do overuse the, the term and sort of equate um, a, a display of arrogance or grandiosity with the full uh, 
construct of narcissism, and that's not really the case. Uh, with narcissism, we really are looking at a self-presentation of superiority, but with that, a real preoccupation with social status and preoccupation with social status, not only in comparison to other people, but in the eyes of other people. So those appraisals from other people become really important. And then we'll see other sort of sub-domains or sub-characteristics with narcissism, things like vanity and arrogance and superiority and entitlement and exploitation of others. So in terms of the relationship thing you mentioned, when I have new research assistants and I'm trying to help them understand the construct, I tell them, these are people you used to date. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then it clicks. Everyone automatically understands from that point. That makes a lot more sense. Okay, okay, there, there it goes. Um, so, and I think, and you talked about this paradox, Chris, uh, before we jump into, you know, the, the work that you're doing specifically within that, but like the paradox between having low self-esteem and, and presumably like a perceived high, like narcissists would, you would assume would have really high self-esteem because they think so greatly about themselves, right? Right, right. And and that's one of the, the puzzles that I've been interested in, in trying to work toward solving uh, is the um, overlap or even lack thereof between self-esteem and narcissism. And as someone trained in clinical uh, child and adolescent psychology, I became interested in the developmental um, influences on that relationship too. And, and some of the work that I've done has shown even a negative correlation between narcissism and self-esteem in pre-adolescent children. And then that overlap, and this is cross-sectional stuff, so this is not following the same participants over time, but right. we see a more convergence into adolescence and adulthood. And that sort of speaks to the idea, similar to what you were saying about if someone self-reports themselves as narcissistic, then they almost automatically infer that they also have high self-esteem. Right. But there's a lot of literature that would suggest that underlying that narcissism is really a lot of insecurity and essentially low self-esteem. And we may see the core of that in the younger samples that we study. Right. So the higher they're, they're ranking in narcissism, the lower their self-esteem actually is, which is counterintuitive to what we would anticipate. Right. And, and, and so what did you do? To, I mean, what, take us back to where you start. So that's where you started. So what... <laughs> did you find within that research and has that paradox kind of uh been cleared up i guess like are, are, is it more of you know like it ever never is in research but like is there more definitive research now that's saying that they have they have lower self-esteem than others or is are, are there examples where they do have higher reports of self-esteem sure so i think in the research community i think we've we've come to grips with the nuance of this mm -hmm. in that Narcissism is also multifaceted. And so we'll have sort of different aspects of the self that might be activated in, in certain situations. So if we have an adult who has developed essentially a wide array of narcissistic characteristics, then we'll see displays of, of grandiosity and, and vanity and superiority and arrogance, sort of that traditional grandiose narcissism that we think of. And that's going to be more connected to, to high self-esteem versus um, some of the more um, uh, insecure manifestations of the self, like um, contingent self-esteem, I'll come back to that in a second, um, really do speak to that insecurity and lower self-esteem. And so with contingent self-esteem, it's the idea that, that maybe there's not a stable, um, strong answer to that correlation that we're talking about between narcissism and self-esteem. Instead, that the self-esteem of someone um, who is narcissistic is very contingent on their social environment. So it tends to fluctuate. It tends to be really high when they're getting praise, the kind of praise that they think they deserve or really want. Um, and then it tends to be uh, really um, lower negative um, 
emotions are dysregulated in the face of negative appraisals from others. Right. And with narcissism, Chris, it, is it, um, does it span multiple aspects of your life or is it, you know, can it be stuck to, you know, just like say your work, you can be a narcissist at work or within your relationships or, or within sport or something like that? That's a great question. And I, I don't know that I really have a gr- good empirical um, answer to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, in terms of the motivation that we think is behind narcissism, so the, the, the social status motivation, the drive toward being viewed favorably, I, I think someone who is very motivated by that and driven by that may exhibit certain characteristics in work situations or in uh, close intimate relationships that they believe are going to result in that positive feedback from others. Right. Yeah. So they might kind of take that kind of thing, that, that approach that they've learned in different aspects of their life and try and establish it in others. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, so, so talking about that, you're spe- you've been specifically looking at adolescence. Why is it adolescence that you, you're interested in or you've been interested in your research career? So yeah, my training and my background is in clinical child and adolescent psychology, as I mentioned earlier. So I just have a strong interest in, in right. So that was um, how people, we went into right. Um, when I first started out in, um, as a faculty member, I had a, a colleague asking me about my research and, and he mentioned, oh, you're studying um, narcissism in adolescence. That's just a redundant concept. All adolescents are narcissistic. And so that was a, a sort of a, a motivating factor too, is to really understand uh, developmental typicality versus atypicality in something like this. And when we think about adolescence, a normal, what we believe is healthy developmental component to adolescence is separation and individuation. And to do that effectively, at least in individualistic societies, we have to assert ourselves. We have to be confident that we can separate, that we do have something to offer the world around us. Now, is that narcissistic? Uh, Not necessarily, but I think a lot of times teens can come across as sort of self-centered and overconfident. And so even that piece in the context of adolescence became really interesting to me. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I challenge our viewers <laughs> to think about what they were like when they were in adolescents in high school and, and middle school, right? <laughs> uh, some some can uh, remember those times as being, you know, awkward, but like also at the same time, you know, I do see that comparison where things are adolescents and teenagers especially are often considered to be very ego driven and focused on themselves. Mm-hmm. So I can see where that, that link between narcissism can be made. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And so in terms of just some of the research questions that we looked at in the context of adolescence it, um, are really basic questions in terms of what does it look like psychometrically to try to, to assess this? And then also do scores on narcissism measures in adolescence relate to important uh, clinical variables like aggression, anxiety, even depressive symptoms? Uh, how do they relate to peer appraisals, which I think is a really important consideration. Uh, and so that that's how it kind of all started. It's just looking at really essential, simple questions. Yeah, absolutely. And so so what does um, your work looks at uh, outcomes like youth delinquency and aggression specifically, you said. What are those? Can you describe what, what youth delinquency specifically looks like and what aggression looks like maybe in boys and girls? Does it look the same? Um, From what we've um, been able to tell, there are no um, strong gender differences in terms of the correlations with narcissism. Um, Males in our samples do tend to score a bit higher on narcissism, which is a consistent finding through decades of of research, even with adults. Uh, And and the the correlations, rather, tend to be 
moderate with aggression and delinquency. And so part of um, the extension of that work is to is to look at moderators. What are factors coupled with narcissism that might heighten the risk for aggression, for example, or delinquency? And in terms of specific social processes, the connection between narcissism and aggression tends to be more consistent. So this is aggression often in the in response to an ego threat, so reactive kinds of aggression, right. uh, versus delinquency. The way that we measure delinquency could encompass a wide variety of behavioral issues, substance use, uh, property damage, aggression or violence toward others. And narcissism isn't necessarily that versatile uh, in terms of its connection to a, a variety of, of negative behaviors. The most consistent connection, again, is seems to be with aggression. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, that would be, and, and as you talked about this, this contingent self-esteem, are those individuals that are looking for that um, approval or, you know, acceptance or just response from others, if they're not getting that, is that when they're most likely to have those, you know, you're most likely to see those delinquent behaviors and aggression? That's a great question. One of the things that, uh, the research really points to is a connection between narcissism and reactive aggression, as I mentioned, but also narcissism and proactive aggression, which is aggression that is um, for personal gain. It's not necessarily for in response to a threat or a perceived threat. So the classic example might be a bullying kind of behavior, taking another kid's lunch money, kind of yep. you know, stereotypical sort of <laughs> view of, of proactive aggression. So I have a graduate student now, and, and this is what I love about my job, uh, who is introducing the, the idea of intolerance of uncertainty into this, into the mix. And that does intolerance of uncertainty, um, especially for teens who are high in narcissism, connect to that proactive aggression. So entering a, 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 a social situation where the appraisal is not a given or it's uncertain, does that sort of engender a motivation to assert dominance or assert aggression in that right. situation proactively uh, in a way that's gonna make that contingent self-esteem pretty high and secure, if that makes sense? Yeah. How, how are you going about doing that? Am I allowed to ask that or is that <laughs> You're absolutely allowed to ask that. And we've, uh, we have a paper under review that looks at um, self-report inventories uh, with intolerance of uncertainty. But one of the things we want to do, and this is, this has turned out to be much more difficult than we ever imagined is to, is to experimentally manipulate an right. uncertain condition, which sounded straightforward when we started and, and we've, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> we've been working on it. So, uh, the, the idea is to, is to basically put people in, uh, a socially uncertain situation. Uh, yeah. and then with COVID we have to try to do that, um, mm. over zoom or some other platform and then, um, present an opportunity, to, uh, for aggression. And so these are things that are still, um, in the works and, and, Uncertainty is a, is a fact of life. We face uncertainty to try to bring that into the lab and experimentally manipulate it has, like I said, been much more challenging than we expected. Yeah, it's quite funny that there's so much uncertainty as to how you're going to do this. Right, right there you go. All right, it's, it's, really, uh, it's really taxing our tolerance of uncertainty right now. Yeah, um, interesting point too. I mean, I, and I, I, I kind of, I laugh when, when you said, you know, you use the example of, you know, stealing lunch money. I'm not sure if there, there's any any kids there with with like money in their pockets anymore it's, right, all, right. it's all plastic anymore I'm, I'm curious as to how those bullies 
you know, function now. I mean, maybe they're just asking them to buy stuff on their card. I have no clue. Right. Give, give me your, give me your code. Give me your lunch code. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or tap your card for me. Right. <laughs> right. Um, I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but you did make a great point though. I mean, your, 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 the, the situation we're in right now with COVID, um, Beckons to another point that, I mean, the work that you're doing on social media behavior and how narcissism can play a role in that as well, which is such an easy, I mean, such a simple parallel in my head to make Mm -hmm. uh, because narcissism, uh, I've I've seen a lot of people say that, oh, this person posts on Instagram a lot or posts pictures of themselves looking for attention. And and a lot of people can assume that that might be, you know, narcissistic behavior. Um, what have you done within that realm? I'm, I'm so, I love the work that you've done in it. So I, I'm just kind of letting you take the reins. Let's, let's know sure. So I don't know how much uh, background detail you want, but uh, yeah, you know. So in terms of um, studying narcissism um, and and how it influences, at least we think influences social interactions, parallel to this emergence of social media, it just seemed like an obvious fit. And to be honest, one day I was um, blowing leaves in my driveway and just came up with a a study, an Instagram-based study on the connection between narcissism and the proportion of Instagram posts that someone made that were selfies. The idea being that the more selfies you post on your Instagram page, uh, the higher the narcissism. And so that was basically the study. Um, so we um, collected self-report inventories of narcissism and self-esteem and other self-perception variables, and then coded participants' Instagram um, profiles for selfie or, or not, how, and, and what percentage of their Instagram posts were selfies. And then we got into themes in terms of things like physical appearance selfies, affiliation selfies, uh, selfies that document an event or activity or accomplishment, those kinds of things. And long story short, we found really no correlation between narcissism and and taking selfies um, or posting selfies. And so you're absolutely right, Drake. Part of the picture, and and this sort of links to a study that we did a little bit later, uh, is not only what a post says about ourselves, but a really important piece of this is what a post conveys to other people or said differently how people perceive us based on what we post. Uh, and so we did a second selfie study and incorporated, um, not just selfies, but what we call posies. So these are traditional photographs of the person. So they're posed photographs, not with the awkward angle and the arm or the selfie stick or anything like that. Okay. And and again, found no correlation with self-reported narcissism. Um, so, so then the next, the next study, um, was really, um, where we tried to incorporate audience perceptions. And this was, uh, to give you a little bit of the backstory, um, mm-hmm. for the second study, the students who were coding um, the Instagram post for that study would often confer with each other because they were a little um, sometimes uncertain about, is this um, an event selfie or is this an affiliation selfie or what have you? And how, so they, you how do you code an affiliation uh, selfie? So, so you use context. So it, if you have another um, person in the picture, but then the, the caption really highlights the friendship or happy birthday to this best friend of mine or, or whatever. Okay. So, the, so it's highlighting the connection or the affiliation with the other person. Okay. Okay. Um, and so we're using that information and, and, and essentially making, wow. making judgments about it. And yeah. so the, sometimes those judgments were, were murky. And mm-hmm. the students named their group 
chat, uh, check your selfie before you wreck your selfie. And I, th- I just thought that was golden. And I wanted to, I wanted to use that somehow and ended up designing a study, true story, designing a study so I could use that title. And I, see, I see you have it in press right now, Chris. I was going to mention, I love the title. <laughs> so it's the first time that the title came first and then the study design came after. <laughs> you got to love that. I'm, I'm so, it's, it's so interesting too, talking about this coding. Because I, I, when I was in my undergrad, I, I had, uh, I lived with six girl roommates, and I hope, I hope they listen to this now because we had arguments about what a selfie was, uh, and they said, I said, I've never taken a selfie before, <laughs> and I completely was wrong. I was so wrong. Like I think I, they went back through my Facebook page, and <laughs> all my photos, and then sent me the pictures of where I had selfies, <laughs> and I said. Oh no! I took that off my video camera, off my like uh, laptop camera, so my I wasn't taking it with my phone, and my arm wasn't in it, so it's not a selfie. So sure. there's a lot of nuances to this. <laughs> it, it, there are, and I've thought quite often about how much harder it would be now to try to code this. Yeah. This the first study that we did was. Uh, seven years ago. And, and I just think about how much these platforms change, how users change what they do, how they choose, um, change which platforms they choose to use. Mm-hmm. So the evolution of, of social media um, is far faster than our research methods can often keep up with. Oh, absolutely. Honestly, whenever you said you were going to date yourself, I thought you were going to talk about your my like doing analyses on MySpace or something <laughs> like that. But I mean, alas, your Instagram's not that, that old. So. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I agree. Like I think I think that's the really interesting thing about your work and 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 individuals that are doing work in uh, related to technology because it does it, it's advancing so quickly that you know now we're not talking about Facebook pictures we're talking about Instagram pictures and posts and interactions and you know mm-hmm. and there's TikTok now and all these other videos that can go go into this as well I imagine and and it just kind of continues to give you a a wealth of data to, to, to groom, I guess. Right. And, and new questions. And, and sometimes that can be overwhelming, but I think at the end of the day, it's really exciting. It's, it's to try to, to sort of map what we do to try to understand human behavior to the human behavior that's, that's out there that, that people are engaging in. Absolutely. Yeah. So you were talking about the, uh, so just to go back, I'm sorry for the, the sidetrack. That's just part of the course with me. Um, the third study you were talking about the interactions. So you said that the selfie, the first study on selfies, showed no like the amount of selfies you post showed no relationship to narcissism and then your posies where you're posing with groups and things like that also didn't relate to narcissism but then you looked at the interactions that were going on um, right underneath those photos right so what we did for for that study is we had uh 30 participants at another university um basically allow us to screenshot and code their 30 most recent Instagram posts. Um, as a quick side note, the other thing that we realized is as Instagram had taken hold and um, had been um, used for a while, we were going back and coding our participants as undergraduates when they were in middle school. And that wasn't terribly valuable <laughs> to get a window into their current sort of self-perception. So we limited it to the, the 30 most recent posts. Then we had another group of participants um, at Washington State, where, I, where I'm located, rate those participants just based on the images, no captions, no locations, rate those participants on a variety of characteristics, in, including um, how good of a friend they, they would seem to be, how successful they are, how arrogant they are, um, how lonely they are, what did they have um, self, high self-esteem, um, those kinds of things. And what we found and it was really remarkable to the to the point that I went back and redid the analyses a few times just to, to make sure is that those um, 
in the initial sample, the targets, if you will, those who posted more selfies, the traditional selfie out of the 30 posts, the higher proportion of selfies there, were rated uniformly negatively by these strangers. These are people who are just making these judgments based on the images, no context at all. Versus those who had a higher proportion of posies, the traditional images and it's showing the person, the person who's, whose Instagram page this is, uh, were rated uniformly positively. Uh, so it's, it's as if we like the, we like to sort of see the person and know something about the person and what they're up to and what they like, but we don't really like, we, we've sort of, in my view, sort of come to perceive these selfies as obnoxious or as sort of uh, arrogant, even if they're not, you know, the first two studies, and then this was replicated in the third study, don't find a firm connection between selfies and personality or self-perception. The important piece to keep in mind is that it still may connect to how other people see us. Right. Yeah. Wow. So the, the posies can be also you taking a picture of yourself technically, <laughs> but you know, giving more context to where you are. Right. 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 So that we, we've not found a, a, a clear way around that where you can set a timer and, and it make it look like a posy. And I had someone ask me that, well, well, if they if, if someone sees the results of your studies, then they just learn to adjust what they do, which is to make mm -hmm. it look like a posy and then they'll be viewed favorably. <laughs> and I, I don't know that I can argue with that, I guess. Yeah. You may be playing a big role in people's dating profile, Chris, and you just don't know it, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's so funny, though, because, I mean, I, I also had interest in... Um, I, my background's in sex research and relationship research. Uh, and the first study that I did at undergrad, I was really interested in uh, the use of, uh, of Tinder and, and uh, dating apps. And, and, and I've talked to so many people. I haven't done the work fully. I haven't you know, found the, the results, but I have talked to a lot of researchers on this and just friends. Uh -huh. and, and, and they all agree that selfies are not a good thing to include in your dating profile. So, I mean, I see this parallel that in other places. Right. I have a colleague uh, who's interested in, in using the, the methodology that I just described in a Tinder study with the expectation of exactly what you said, which is that the selfie, in and of the, the way we think of it, is going to be a turnoff. It's going to be a swipe left. Uh, I think swipe left's the bad one. Uh, swipe left kind of thing. Yeah, uh, I think swipe yeah. left. <laughs> Uh, I think uh, that I, I'm I'm excited to see that study come out because I think that that's exactly what's I, I think they're onto the right track for sure. Are we are we saying that like this person is with somebody? They're like you know it's is it more about the context that they're in? Is it that they're just their arms not there? It's more flattering. Like what is going on in your what what do you think's going on here for these evaluations? Yeah, that's a great question. And it, when I think back to um, when I initially did this research, and then I think about how parallel to those of us doing research in this area versus uh, popular press uh, notions of social media behavior. I wonder if um, selfies just really got a bad rap or bad name uh, and that was sort of ingrained in popular culture um, perceptions. Uh, the, the whole reason I even married the narcissism research with the selfie research was I think this notion that someone posting this must be narcissistic, let's go test it. And yeah. so I wonder then downstream when we conducted this uh, third study with the perceptions of Instagram posts, if that sort of idea had taken hold. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the relationship with self-esteem, I'm kind of interested, I'm quite interested in too, because there's, you know, especially with your, when you're talking about adolescence, but even beyond that, I'm, I'm thinking as, you know, I guess I'm not even a young adult anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs> uh, so uh, as, you know, as an adult, I, I still see these things, you know, this is still relevant in our lives where there's a lot of individuals that are 
creating a uh, image of themselves online and and how is that impacting them individually i guess because there's there's two ways to look at this and, and then you've you've addressed both of them is like what are other people thinking about them and what are they thinking about themselves in response to using these photos right right and that gets into a whole other you know area of, of research yeah. as well and and that's if self-esteem is a, a challenging variable we all have a notion of what self-esteem is but when we look at the self-esteem literature it's really difficult to, to kind of come to firm conclusions. And I think because self-esteem is just this, such a broad construct and, and oftentimes self-esteem is very domain specific that yes. in terms of how that interfaces with what we do on social media, we probably have to drill down into more specific self-perception variables to get a more clear picture. Mm -hmm. I have a question, Chris, about Instagram and, you know, narcissism and, and, and the studies that you've, you've done. Sure. How do you account for followers and, you know, outreach in this respect? Because I think of myself, I mean, I would love to have 10,000 followers, but I think I'm around 250 at this point. Mm -hmm. and, and they're all mainly friends that I actually know in person. But when it comes to posting and, you know, getting those kind of interactions, does having a public profile, having like a bunch of followers, does that have a big role in this as well? Yeah, that's a good question. And we've tried to, to um, look at some of those parameters of the Instagram account itself. Um, we've coded for public versus private account and not really found anything. Uh, the one thing that we have found is that um, narcissism is related to having more followers. So and, and you wonder what the feedback loop is there. Is it that um, having more followers is, is sort of a boost to the ego or is somehow, at least in that sort of two dimensional platform, uh, this, this sort of confident display or self-display um, tends to attract more followers. Uh, it's, a, it's a difficult question um, because also there, I think there are different levels of um, Instagram fame. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, just people that, who we sort of interact with in day-to-day -day life, but then maybe people that we interact with in day-to-day -day life, but then they have thousands of followers and we're not sure how that, how that is. And then we have influencers and then we have celebrities. Uh, and, and so it, it, that sort of adds a layer of complexity into, like I said, that feedback loop of which comes first, the, the feedback from social media or the self-perception that then generates certain feedback from social media. Right. And so I think this is, again, kind of getting at my misconception of it. But at a certain point, does having, uh, you know, is nar can narcissism be honestly a benefit to you, I guess, in a sense, in this, like, you are looking for that feedback, say you're an Instagram, you're very popular on Instagram and you kind of want to push to be an influencer for some reason or another. Um, would that actually be advantageous to have that kind of narcissistic personality? I, I know that there's a lot of under, like, uh, it's, I don't even know if it's backed up, I'm not sure, but like there's the idea that uh, a lot of business, uh, rich business people are narcissistic or sure. you know, they're driven in that way because they want to continue to, to be better. Um, sure. does, is it beneficial or is it usually like, like you said, like, is it usually a bad thing that, or, or at least for self-esteem to, to be driven by narcissism? Yeah, that's a, that's a terrific question and, and point of discussion. I think in individualistic societies, there's there are clear benefits to narcissism. And you mentioned business leaders. You might even think about um, political figures, and I'll, I'll leave it at that, <laughs> where, where they, maybe they generate a following. And, and, and part of the attraction is the narcissism. Uh, yeah. But it, it sort of reminds me, and I'm, I'm sort of hearing your thoughts on it and merging some of my research and, and merging things that others have written about narcissism. And, and one thing that really struck me in what you were saying is that um, 
when I think about our results and how narcissism or, or sort of self displays, selfie displays might be viewed negatively by others, you know, it depends on what the, the motive of a narcissist is. And going back a, a few decades, one of the, the key uh, pieces of research I, I read from Bob Raskin and colleagues was talking about how narcissists want admiration, but not necessarily approval. So if the motivation is just to generate a lot of followers and, and retweets, if we're talking about Twitter or whatever, and if that's viewed as admiration, mission accomplished, even if I'm turning off a segment of people who might view my profile. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's just, uh, there's a lot there and I'm, I'm just, I love the work that you're doing. So, so should we be taking selfies? Is, is the question, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> in moderation or very carefully or, uh, yeah. Yeah. So more posies with, fr uh, with friends, yeah. doing more context that a lot, that allows you kind of, you know, um, I guess you're perceived better is, is, yeah. is name finding with it. Right. Yeah. Put something, somebody else in yourself, even if you don't know them, just, just get someone <laughs> to, to be in it with you. Uh, and you'll be okay. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, so, so within this work, uh, I think there's there's so much we can go into, Chris. Um, where do you want to go next? I guess uh, is there more? I mean, I think this work within your selfie work and within uh, narcissism. What are the main findings that you really want to highlight for us before we go into a little bit more of your work? I, I think that if I had to sort of sum it up in one or two sentences, is that social media interactions are really complex. And so what someone posts is not necessarily a window into their personality. There may be a lot of context, like they're on, they're on a trip and they, they're really enjoying it, or the, their post is really meant for a subgroup of people. <laughs> um, there's an intended audience. But what we really do want to keep in mind is the other side of that social media coin, which is the audience and the audience perceptions and the audience responses to what we post. Yeah. Absolutely. I really like that. And the implications of your work within the narcissism realm, Chris, what do you, what, uh, what implications are you, have you found within the work that we talked about, uh, with regards to narcissism specifically? I think honestly, you know, initially narcissism was, was pointed to as a focal point of social media research. And I think that if I'm being honest, that's probably a bit overblown, mm -hmm. um, because social media is just such a big part of our lives and generally speaking, uh, now that, that someone who engages with social media isn't necessarily more narcissistic uh, than their peers because everyone uh, engages perhaps in social media to some extent. So the initial lines of thinking were whether um, social media offer a platform for people to display their narcissism if it exists, or is social media, the existence of social media, making us all more narcissistic. And, and I think it's more the former that, that we're going to show some, some of our own um, sort of self-appraisal and personality through how we engage with social media, but it's much more complex than that, that it's not an automatic uh, sort of personality typing uh, that we can do through what someone posts on social media. Right. Yeah. And, I, and that's a really good uh, take home for, for viewers. Don't worry if you're posting selfies. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it doesn't say anything, but uh, do them. Um, introduce somebody into your pictures every once in a while. But I mean, it's also very tough right now. Uh, and that's kind of what I wanted to talk about uh, going forward with you sure. is just kind of get your opinions on, you know, because we've been in COVID for God knows how many months now, uh, right. you know, you're not interacting with as many people face to face. Do you see, uh, what do you see social media use as, you know, 
filling that kind of void, I guess? Yeah, that's a great question. And it, and it definitely has changed uh, in terms of just our general lifestyles and our relationship with social media, our relationship with screens, uh, so to speak. I can speak a little bit to a really specific study um, that I did about a year ago, uh, where uh, this was looking at social media engagement and well-being in student athletes. Uh, so Washington State is part of the Pac-12 conference in uh, the U.S., and uh, nine of the institutions uh, of the Pac-12 agreed to participate in a project of mine that looked at student-athlete well-being and social media engagement. Oh, wow. for, for part of that study, um, I had two institutions um, for whom uh, student-athletes were going to participate in a sort of a baseline measure of their social media engagement and their loneliness, stress, anxiety, FOMO or fear of missing out, uh, constructs like that. And then we were going to introduce a really brief um, intervention that basically was just providing information about if they found social media to be distracting or stressful, here are some strategies they might use to mitigate that, to, to lessen that. Uh, these were called protective behavioral strategies, and it's really born out of the research on alcohol use and substance use. So for example, with alcohol use, a protective behavioral strategy is to have a designated driver or uh, to make sure that you eat when you know that you're going to be drinking, things like that, just just practical things to lessen the impact of alcohol. So right. we wondered how could that apply to social media, especially if someone perceives that they're too wrapped up in social media. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, um, we collected the data for that part of the study in late January, early February of 2020. And then the follow-up was going to be five weeks after that. That's exactly when quarantine hit, right? So accidentally, we have pre and post COVID quarantine data on student athlete, social media engagement and well-being. better, <laughs> Right. Just like we planned all along. Uh, so um, what we found, uh, this is going to be shocking, is that screen time went way up, right? Mm. <laughs> of course it did. And it, yep. and it did for lots of reasons. It did for lots of functional adaptive reasons in terms of academic demands, the delivery of their coursework last spring, um, in terms of social connections, right? So, so screen time went up. When we um, had basically a, uh, the phase of the study, when we had um, that in the fall of 2019, which looked at just basic questions surrounding social media engagement, one of the things that we found was that screen time in and of itself was not related to loneliness, FOMO, depression, anxiety, stress. Mm -hmm. But what really was important in those relations was the participants' perception that social media interfered with their relationships, interfered with their sleep, interfered with their academics, interfered with their social lives. So it's really about how we perceive this social media thing in our lives. Um, those who reported higher stress and loneliness also reported using social media more during daily activities. So for example, in the 15 minutes after they woke up, in the 15 minutes before they went to sleep, during class, uh, immediately after competition, these were student athletes. And so it's not mere screen time is what is the picture that we think we're, we're getting. It's, it's our relationship with it. Do we yeah. perceive this as a chore? Do we perceive this as a, as a distraction? Is it a distraction in terms of it, it's finding a place in our daily activities? Right. When and where and how are you using it is more relevant than how often are you using exactly. it? Exactly. And especially now, because we, yeah. we're, we've become more dependent on it for engagement with others. Absolutely. I, and, and Chris, I want to talk about this intervention and the protective behavioral strategies that you were talking about. What would that kind of look like when it comes to social media use? Because I'm sure that would be something that 
a lot of people are probably interested that are listening right now. Sure. So this is um, not something that we have a lot of um, clear data on just because uh, plans were disrupted yeah, <laughs> a year ago. Yeah. But in terms but of what those look like, I guess, for like somebody that's like feeling that kind of concern, I guess. Right. Yeah. Right. So what we did in terms of the protective behavioral strategies that we suggested was ask uh, undergraduate students, this is our, these um, are our participants essentially, uh, what kinds of things they've tried, what, what do they do? And so those are th things like turning um, the phone or device off at night. Uh, it, it's um, using social media only during designated times. It can be um, placing the device out of reach or out of the room when we're trying to study. Um, it could be things that are uh, uh, more significant, like deleting the apps um, or deleting the account. So there, I think there are varying degrees of, of sort of how um, uh, significant these strategies are. Something like turning the device off at night is relatively easy, um, maybe easier to convince someone to do. Uh, deleting the account altogether might not be something that a lot of um, folks are willing to engage. Mm -hmm. I think of uh, a strategy that I've been using, which is pretty much meaningless, is uninstalling the app. <laughs> it's so easy to install it right back. Right. Uh, but this, you know, disabling or you know, deleting a, a, a actual uh, Instagram account or a Facebook account—that's quite drastic. Right. Right. And you just mentioned you just reminded me of another one that I, I, our sample did use quite frequently, which which was turning off notifications. So that little buzz or that little chime, if it's not happening, then there's no reason to pick up the phone and see what the notification uh, yeah. is all about. So it may not be deleting the app, but just turning off the notifications. Absolutely. I feel like that's something that I've done as well for my you know, productivity sake. Uh, <laughs> different apps that just kind of silence it or do not disturb kind of situations as well. Right, right. Right. It's an interesting study uh, before COVID, and it's even more interesting now that we have a COVID sample. It's, yeah. it's, it's quite disruptive in a lot of ways. We talked about uh, the last kind of topic that I really was the reason why I actually reached out to you, Chris, was because of your uh, study on FOMO, and you mentioned uh -huh. it briefly. Uh, so I kind of want to cover it before we, uh, you know, before we get to the end of the episode. So sure. you talked about how FOMO might play a role in, in that study, but you had a study specifically on how like, there might be generational differences in FOMO. Sure. So to, to sort of back up and, and provide context to, to that study, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I am a clinical psychologist by training and, and, and doing some of the initial work on social media and narcissism. I also started to become interested in broader questions of adolescent well-being and social media engagement because we sort of think about adolescents and young adults as being highly engaged with social media. And so just wanting to, to look at Again, very, very straightforward, basic questions about the connection between engagement and um, things like depression and anxiety. And so an initial um, study that we did with a community sample of adolescents, we found that having a higher number of accounts, social media accounts, was related to higher depression and anxiety, but only for those teens who also self-reported high fear of missing out or FOMO. So FOMO was a, was a really clear moderator in that connection, that social media in and of itself or, or being more engaged in the sense of having more accounts was related to internalizing symptoms, but only for those with FOMO. So for those with lower FOMO, that connection really washed out. And so I had a colleague, just sort of in an informal conversation, say, okay, so this FOMO thing you just mentioned, what do you do about it? And I didn't have a really good answer for it. <laughs> I didn't have any answer for it. Um, and, and that really uh, started me thinking about if FOMO is really an important moderator uh, in terms of the self-perception of my connection or lack of connection to other people, 
uh, yeah, what do we do about it? But to do that, to take that step, it, it is more, I think, initially a question of what is it? What is FOMO? What is it related to? And that led to the study that you mentioned in terms of thinking about FOMO as potentially a developmental phenomenon. So does it differ in adolescents versus young adults versus older adults? And or is it a self-perception construct? So does it relate to other constructs, some of which we've talked about, like lower self-esteem, uh, loneliness, uh, self-compassion was another was another variable that we considered in this work. So we had a sample of teenagers, a, a sample of individuals in their mid-20s, um, a sample of participants in their mid-30s and in their mid-40s, so a cross-sectional design. And we found no age differences in FOMO, which was surprising. We, we sort of expected almost like a linear trend to start out with really high FOMO in adolescents and then lower in young adults and lower still uh, in the older cohorts. And that's not what we found. But what we found were, were really clear connections to some of those other self-perception constructs that we considered like loneliness and then a negative connection or negative association with self-compassion. FOMO in general is just kind of an interesting topic for me because I'm like, what? Uh, first off, my my general hypothesis is that extroverts are probably higher in FOMO. Is that wrong? I don't know. That's a really great question. Uh, I may, um, you've inspired me to maybe go back and look and, and see if we have data on that. Right. If we happen to throw in a brief uh, big five and some of the data that we've collected. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. That's a, that's a great question because I could almost um, see either way. So the extroverts are more engaged in the social interactions and what, what's everybody else doing and what am I not doing um, versus um, being self-assured that I'm so outgoing that I can make connections with other people, even if other people are doing things that I'm missing out on. So right. I'm really not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, I always think of introverts being like, I'd rather just be at home. Right. So I, so, I, so I sort of, as a, as a self-perception researcher, say that, that for either an introvert or an extrovert, there's a key self-perception variable that's in there that is probably more directly aligned with FOMO. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. It's just, uh, yeah, that's, my, that's been my perception. I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of like an extroverted introvert, but like, I, say, <laughs> I don't know if my FOMO is abnormally high or not. But I, I, right now, do you think like, <laughs> I, do you think FOMO even is a is a big deal right now? Because it, I don't think anybody's doing anything. Yeah, it's a super question. Because I think when we think about FOMO, we think about fear, we, we think about distress. And part of how we um, think about these constructs as, as being disruptive or impairing is really about what's typical. And so I can perhaps, uh, to the extent that I'm experiencing FOMO, subdue that by realizing, you know, no one's doing anything right now, exactly what you just said. So, so then my distress about that is mitigated because that's just the situation we're in. I don't have to worry about what I'm missing out on because we're all missing out right now. Yeah. Um, so the more typical um, these experiences are, probably the less um, self-referent we make missing out. We don't make it about ourselves or something wrong about ourselves right? Versus when everybody's engaged in activities or going to concerts or events, and I'm not, um, that can be distressing. Yeah. When in a world where people are doing things, <laughs> <laughs> right. that hopefully we'll return to in the near future, um, what would you say are like appropriate ways to reduce that FOMO other than just literally getting up off your ass and going and doing whatever. <laughs> right. You know, the one key variable that I really found myself thinking about, thinking about from an intervention standpoint, going back to that initial question of like, what do you do about FOMO, right? Was the self-compassion. 
and self-compassion really in a lot of ways involves uh, the, the way we sort of measure it uh, involves subcomponents that are negatively tied to self-compassion. So self-judgment, so judging a, a, a negative experience, a negative social experience as in a real self-judging um, uh, negative self-referent light. But on the other hand, it's also um, includes a lot of positive attributes or self-perception attributes like mindfulness. And so for me, that's the one I would probably key in on. And there's a literature, a vast literature on mindfulness interventions in general for a lot of a host of um, clinical difficulties. And so to me, if, if I'm mindful of the experiences that are in my immediate surroundings, that I'm more in the moment, then I don't really have a lot of room for FOMO, right? right. So I can, I can really have more joy in what, um, what's around me. And I think this is, this is me kind of going off of, uh, away from data a little bit and, and just thinking about how social media really just sort of ramped up so quickly, so fast, so broadly, maybe before we even realized it, that we were probably doing things like this is kind of neat and cool. And, and at mealtime or on outings with friends, checking our phones uh, or posting things instead of like actually interacting with the people around yeah. us. Right. And so I, I wonder if that the pendulum is going to swing back to um, sort of understanding, uh, sort of self-understanding of when are these tools useful for me and when are they interfering with my enjoyment of my immediate environment? Yeah. Being, I, I love that part of the part of mindfulness. It was, you know, really focusing on presence and being there and being in the moment and, and acknowledging the, what's going on in your surroundings. I love it. Right. Uh, and I, it, it does, I mean, it does, it pull, if you think about your productivity, for example, uh, you know, pulling up your phone and looking at Instagram for a, a 30 seconds will pull you out of your workflow. Just right. like it'll pull you out of your your interactions with your friends and family. Sure, right. Yeah, uh, I, I love it. I love all the work that you've talked about, Chris. This, is, this has been really really fun. I have one question I always ask all the guests, uh, and I feel like we've already talked about a lot of them. But um, are there any really popular myths or misconceptions within the work that you've done that you really want to address uh, and get, and set straight? Probably the one that that comes to mind for me. I mean, there are probably two, um, and, and we've touched on them a, a bit. One is that there's not a clear connection between social media behavior and personality. That social media behavior is much more complex than to be able to sort of narrow it down to a self-perception profile or even a big five profile. Um, the other is this idea of uh, going back to some of my um, earlier work, the idea of adolescents being uniquely narcissistic. And, and there are developmental differences between adolescents and adults, that's clear. But what we see in, in terms of narcissism, and this is um, looking at even short-term changes over the last 10 years, is a pretty normal distribution, a, a, a nice bell-shaped curve on narcissism that a lot of adolescents sort of cluster around the middle and some are high and some are low, but it's not a uniformly uh, adolescent construct. Right. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's normal, part of the course. Everybody's kind of dealing with it in the same way, no matter what. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I like that. I, I think uh, for all the adolescents and the young adults listening, rest rest easy. <laughs> and for all those lost souls that are still thinking about high school, you're you're fine. You're just part of the course. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm a parent of a 17 year old. So I, you know, I think about these things uh, at different levels uh, all the time. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you do. Uh, thank you again, Chris. This has been really, really fun. Um, uh, I, I can't thank you enough. It's been really enjoyable to talk about your work and I'm sure our listeners enjoyed it as well. Is there any, um, if our viewers have uh, any questions or want to reach out to you in any way, is there any way that they could do that? Oh, sure. Uh, they could certainly email me. It's uh, chris.barry, B-A-R-R-Y at wsu.edu. And I'm also on Twitter. That's since we're talking about social media, uh, it's uh, Chris underscore Barry underscore WSU, WSU for Washington State University. Great. And, and we'll have those links on our website as well when we post this episode. Uh, you have the floor, Chris. Is there anything that you want to promote? Say anything? We always give this option. It's, researchers usually don't jump into it. You're welcome to promote anything that you'd like. don't have anything really to promote. I'll, I'll plant a seed, which is our next uh, study that we're designing. Another one of those that uh, seemed easy at the time and has turned out difficult is a study of JOMO, Joy of Missing Out. So that's the next thing. Uh, oh, wow. Okay, that's a new That's cool. I like it. Yeah. JOMO. Okay. Well, I'm definitely, yeah. I enjoy missing out. I'm, I've got, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation and there's, there's uh, no Jomo here. Um, but, uh, thanks again, Chris. Uh, and uh, you bet. thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks again. This has been awesome. If you have any, uh, if, for our viewers, if you like this episode, please follow us or please like us, subscribe to us, whatever on any podcast uh, platform that you're listening to us uh, and follow us also on our social media pages uh, on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter at Brain Buzz Pod. Uh, thanks again for listening and have a great day. Cheers. Cheers.